So Mark chapter 9. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against me is for me, us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm, their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, and if your f- foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life ma- lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. As a college student, I had an opportunity to take kind of a unique church history course. And the thing that made it unique was rather than sitting in a lecture hall each week for three hours, uh, we could travel for three weeks in the summer to England and Scotland and tour around different significant areas in that region of the world where, where different significant things happen throughout church history. And then while traveling, learn about the different big segments of church history. So it was a far more appealing opportunity than three hours each week in a lecture hall. And so I was thrilled to be a part of this little group that traveled uh, throughout Europe for a three-week period. And it was a small group of us, maybe 20 of us, that were a part of this trip. Uh, It was fun being a part of a group that small because you got to know each other really quickly. But there was one guy who just was unmistakable. As soon as we showed up as a group, he kind of stood out like a sore thumb. The guy was built kind of like Paul Bunyan. Uh, He was just a big all-American boy. He was from Northern California. His name was Derek, a super happy-go-lucky guy, but like a monster of a man, uh, which 
you know, when you're 5'8 and an eighth, it doesn't take much to be overwhelmed by the size. But I mean, he was probably, I don't know, he wasn't like seven foot or anything, but he was like, he was more than six feet. And that's big to some of us. Uh, no, he's a big guy. He kind of looked like one of those guys who'd end up like pulling a semi truck on some strongest man competition or something like that. Always wore a flannel, big beard, uh, big jovial smile. At, because he was from Northern California, we affectionately began to refer to him as Redwood. Um, and it just felt like it fit. The all-American boy, the, the big man that was with us. And Derek had quite the personality. And everywhere he went, uh, we, we started to realize that he drew quite a bit of attention. And it was kind of unfortunate and even became kind of cringy. Because what we started to realize midway through our trip is that Derek was basically proving every American stereotype to be true. And I don't know about you, but when I travel abroad, I, I'm... I'm not like flying with a bald eagle on my shoulder wanting everybody to know like I'm different than you and I'm here to bring my culture. I, I just try to be aware or self-aware at least, especially when you're in a culture that's much more quiet and more reserved than our own, like maybe being in England. But it was like every time we went into a cafe when the stereotype is that Americans are loud and obnoxious, all of us are trying to keep our voices low because it's a quiet place and Derek's super loud. And anytime we, we got up to go anywhere, like someone would say, hey, we need to go. Uh, we're meeting up with this group somewhere. Like we need to wrap up our time in the cafe. Every time there was any transition point, he always said the same thing in a super loud voice. He'd go, get to the choppa, kind of like our former governor would say and and it was so embarrassing because I'd look around and I'd just see people like put their heads and go, Americans. And then it was him as we'd be walking along. It's like beautiful scenic places. And he'd stop in the middle of pathways or walkways and he'd start winding his camera because I'm that old. And, and then he'd pull, hold his camera up to snap a picture. But he's a big man and he's blocking the pathway. And so it'd be these little, these little old English grandmas like pushing past him going, Americans. It was just a dead giveaway. It seemed like absolutely everywhere we went. And then it was him as we'd walk. And, and I get it. My feet were tired, and I, didn't have the, I don't have the frame of a man who's referred to as Redwood. He does. And so he was often complaining about his feet. And he'd, he'd just say it a lot, like, are we done walking for the day? I'm so tired of walking. And, and again, I'd hear other people around us just, oh, Americans. It was painful and became super cringy. But for him, it wasn't anything he was doing intentionally. It was just he was letting the natural culture that was a part of his life, the, the natural elements that had become pretty much a part of him, not just like, oh, this is where I'm from. No, it was so natural for him just to act a certain way, to hit all sorts of stereotypes. Now, for all of us, for every unique people group uh, that different people around the world find themselves in, all of them have cultural norms. They all have stereotypical things that, that are earmarks for those cultures. And, and for many of you, even, you'd probably admit that when you have friends that visit you here in Southern California, that they'll catch you as you give them directions on where to drive, and they'll start laughing, saying, I can't believe it's true, because they've seen that SNL skit from years ago, where we talk about driving the 5 to the 56 to the 15, and the way that we even just describe our freeways are a dead giveaway that you've lived in Southern California long enough to have it in, in influence or infect you, <laughs> depending on how you view it. But we've probably, most of us have had moments like that where people have laughed even about those little things that are these little cultural tells that are subtle and unnoticeable to us because they're so natural to us, but they're a dead giveaway to other people around us. They reveal where we're from, what culture we're a part of, what place or area or, or different region of the country that we find that we make uh, our home in. 
And long before someone would check my passport or even just look at my driver's license to see which state it's registered in, they could watch and just listen to you or me and begin to take a very educated, make a very educated guess at where you're from because of the cultural norms that they're beginning to see come out of you quite naturally. And no one had to teach us these things, these dead giveaway little cultural pieces that are part of who we are as Americans or Californians or even San Diegans. They're naturally developed inside of us as a byproduct of us just being present in this culture. It's the culture's impact in our lives that then shapes us into it, that, that we're impacted by it in a way that's really, really natural. The section of scripture we've just read together is really Jesus talking about some kingdom culture. Like if you're a member of the kingdom of God, these are cultural pieces that should become a part of the norm of your everyday life. The way that you'd see the world, the way that, that, that you'd think about the world, the ideology you'd hold about greatness and arriving or significance, the way that you'd view sin that would be so different from the culture you find yourself a part of because you are a citizen of another place. And so Jesus lays out for you the, the earmarks of the kingdom culture. He starts to teach here about that. And I, I just mentioned it, but it's true. The scriptures teach us that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have a dual citizenship, that you're not just a citizen of the country you reside in, but you are a citizen of heaven, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And they understood that idea because they were a Roman colony that lived far from Rome in a community called Philippi. Philippi was originally founded... A nerdy fun fact of the day, I guess. Um, didn't think I'd go there, but originally founded by Alexander the Great, and uh, it's actually his father. But Alexander the Great, as he finished conquest, and then later as the Romans would beat them back and take that place, it was a significant spot, and they would have their generals retire there. So people had their identity wrapped up in the fact that they were a part of Rome, although they were now far from Rome. So they were a colony of Rome living far from Rome. Think of this. So then Paul says to them that, no, you're now a colony of heaven living on the earth. You're far from that homeland, but you have that homeland's protection, provision that are uh, available to you, and you have a promise that you belong in that place. Your citizenship is secure. And that's a reality for each of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have a dual citizenship. And so a part of the cultural tells that people should pick up on in my life as a follower of Jesus are not just that you're a Californian or Southern Californian or a San Diegan, but they should see things in me and go, there's something about you, though, that is so different and distinct from the cultural norms of the world that you find yourself in. There's something that looks so very different that looks more like the way that Jesus looked. And, and here's your spoiler alert, and this is important that you hear this right from the onset. Your spoiler alert is that what we discuss today are not so much things that you strive for or even work at. These things that Jesus talks about here are the byproduct of you yielding to the work of God's Spirit at work in your life. So what if you're hearing me today as we talk through this text, if you're hearing me say, so now you need to get to the next level and, and change this about yourself, then you're not hearing me rightly or I'm not communicating it clearly. Because really what this is about is allowing the Holy Spirit to work inside of you and develop and transform you more into the person of Jesus. In fact, Jesus would say, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about his warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod and of the Sadducees. He warned that their 
ideology, their thinking would permeate a life like leaven or yeast going into dough and permeating the whole thing, that it would move subtly, that leaven would, but it would move pervasively throughout the whole of the loaf, making it toxic. Now track with me. Jesus also taught, though, about his own kingdom ideology. He said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. He warned, don't, don't be influenced by these other lines of thinking that will distort the true gospel. But then Jesus taught of his own teachings, that my teachings are like leaven, they're like yeast. In that when they enter into the loaf, they permeate throughout the entirety of it, that they move subtly but pervasively throughout the whole of your life. That that is the work of God at work in me and in you. That's what he's desiring to do is have him be received uh, into your life like leaven coming into the dough. And then as we allow him to and as we yield to him, that his work takes place beneath the surface, transforming us from the inside out. It's a subtle thing that happens, but it's a powerful transformation that begins to take place. So please hear me. If you're thinking that you're hearing me today saying, these are the things you need to get to the next level and do, then you're missing the fact that these are things that Jesus, I believe, teaches are the natural byproduct of us walking with him and yielding to his spirit. You see, because as members of his kingdom, as citizens of heaven, we have something more powerful than just an external example of what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom. We have the king himself living inside of us if you've chosen to follow Jesus. And as he's working inside of us, he's transforming and shaping us into his image. And our section of scripture today is is an example of, of a shift that's now happening at the end of Jesus' life, a shift that's happening in Mark's gospel, where now we've arrived, remember, at that pivotal turning point where Jesus has told us now, not just as he's progressively, patiently revealed his identity, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God earlier in this chapter, but now it's Jesus very clearly explaining to us what his purpose was. And his purpose, he says here, is that he would suffer and die and rise from the dead. And that shift also is from three years of ministry that we followed to now we just look at the final weeks and months of Jesus' life. Another part of that shift, as you found it here again, is that Jesus is no longer addressing and ministering to the crowds, the multitudes. Instead, Jesus now, it even says in our story, that he goes another route back towards the Galilee, And when he does, he's doing it privately to be alone with his disciples. Because rather than just teaching the multitude, now he's preparing his disciples for his looming departure. The uniqueness of Mark's gospel is this. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels, but it's also the most action-packed. It records far more of what Jesus did than what he taught. And so when we have a large section of Jesus teaching like this, I almost feel like you you lean in with even more attention because we're so not used to seeing so much red text in front of us that's showing us that this is a time when a a chunk of Jesus teaching, a, a chunk of what he said and taught is recorded for us. And so for us, we pay extra careful attention to these things. And like I told you, I think what he teaches is about his kingdom. Remember, his miracles weren't just proving power. His miracles weren't just... Uh, showing and demonstrating that he cared for people. His miracles gave people a glimpse into what his kingdom would be like because God will only briefly allow and he never intended for brokenness, for suffering, for hunger, uh, for people to be blind or lame, for all of the things that Jesus will step in and, and do these miraculous things. Remember, he's doing it to give you a glimpse of what it will be like to be with him one day in his kingdom. But his teaching is almost exclusively addressing that kingdom. 
So his actions and his teaching were meant to paint a big picture for us of what he's doing and where we are going. And so they're meant to not just challenge our mind like they will today, but they're meant to also be received as some sort of a promise to our heart that the world that you and I want is coming, that he will make the world right again. And so his teaching here is addressing his kingdom. And there's three little things that I just want to point out to you about the, the, the kingdom and the work of the king in your life. These are the, the cultural tells that people will be able to pick up on and go, there's something about you that's a dead giveaway that maybe seems natural to us, but is so foreign to the world. And the first is this, is that in Jesus' kingdom, one of the things we find in this story is that it illustrates that, that the fight or flight instinct that's a part of us can be reshaped into faith. That the fight or flight instinct that's a part of us, fight or flight is reshaped into faith. Because all of us know as human beings that, that that instinct, a fight or flight reaction, is really hardwired into us. Where you're in a high pressure situation or even a dangerous situation and that you'll typically respond either with aggression or that you'll withdraw in fear. And I was thinking about this this week because I had studied all day Thursday, Thursday evening in order to kind of decompress. I went for a run. It was late, so I had my nerdy little headlamp going. Uh, and I'm deep in thought as I'm running, trying to process this, and even thinking about this idea, this concept of fight or flight. And as I'm running, out of nowhere, jumps someone out of the bushes, coming right towards me as I'm running alongside these bushes on this little path. And, and I hate to break it to you, but... The fight or flight instinct in me that revealed itself was not a lot of aggression. Uh, I was thankful I was so afraid that no like crazy high-pitched sound came out of my body. Um, especially because I realized really quickly it was like a junior high boy who was sneaking out of his backyard in order to take a shortcut to the movie theater that I just ran past, which made it even more embarrassing. But in life circumstances, I think we often find ourselves with our backs pushed up against the wall. And in those moments, that's how we re react is one way or the other. It's either a fight, we, we press in with aggression, or it's with a flight that we pull back out of fear that, that we realize this is not a fight that I'm worth engaging with. But I think as we follow Jesus, that we find ourselves leaning into this third option that begins to almost feel hardwired into us that we realize we're capable of, that we realize is something that we can lean into to. And that's that we can now respond in these high pressure situations with faith. And it's something I think we're seeing here in this story, at least beginning to be illustrated here. Remember, the disciples are in this really unique position that's highlighted for us again, beginning in verse 30, where it talks about, really, this is the second of three times in Mark's gospel that Jesus makes it very clear that I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But then I'm going to rise again. And this is the second time where the guys respond with it telling us they don't even understand what he's saying. Their reaction in a moment like this, where now their leader that they've given up everything to follow is saying, this is how it's going to end. And they're overwhelmed. And this is that fight or flight moment for them where Jesus talks about his looming suffering and death. The last time he brought it up, he also looked at them, remember, and he said, and you will also suffer if you're going to follow me. It pushed their back against the wall. The first time he brought it up, remember how Peter responded? With aggression, right? Because he rebukes Jesus. The fight or flight instinct kicks in and he leans in quick and tells him, there's not a chance, Jesus. Not so, Lord. It's not going to happen. And Jesus rebukes him in response and gives him that new nickname in the story. But this time, it seems that the disciples' response is really the opposite. It stimulates and animates the fear that already existed inside of them where it says that they didn't understand, but they were even too afraid to ask Jesus. 
We'll see these same reactions manifest later. Remember at the end of Jesus' story, when he's arrested, what does Peter do? He pulls a sword out and lops a guy's ear off. But then we find the disciples, the rest of the guys, what do they do? They abandon Jesus and they run in fear. Jesus would say that as the, the chief shepherd, the, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what we see play out. But it isn't always that way in this guy, these guys' story. Fast forward to the other side of the cross, where Peter will stand on the day of Pentecost and he'll begin to preach. And the very ones that crucified Jesus or who he preached to, he boldly proclaimed to them that if you don't repent and yield to Jesus as Lord, that you'll be judged by him. All of a sudden, he's overcome with faith. It's those same guys who had abandoned Jesus and left in fear are the same guys who become the first martyrs of the church. Remember, where they all lose their lives for their testimony and faith in Jesus. Their, their unwillingness to recant on their claim that they saw Jesus alive, a risen Savior. They demonstrate incredible faith because of the transforming work and power of Jesus at work in their lives. That, that's what happens. There's a transformation that takes place in these guys. And one of the times that Jesus would tell the guys about his looming departure, he told them, it's actually better for you. John's gospel records this in chapter 16. He says, it's better for you if I leave. But do you remember why he said it's better? Because this is, this is controversial Jesus stuff. Because when I think of what my options are, Jesus, if I could choose to have you with me walking by my side, or, or I choose the experience that I have now where you're not beside me, but your Holy Spirit has been given to me, I would probably lean into the choice of Jesus, I'd rather have you walking with me. Because that would be great. What an experience. What an incredible experience to walk with Jesus and see him. But I'd see him as an example. I'd see him as a savior, but I couldn't receive him inside my life to have his transforming power at work in my life. That's why Jesus said, it's better for you if I go, because if I go, he said, then I'll send another helper who's been with you, but he will be inside you. There's a promise that that on the other side of the cross, that followers of Jesus will be indwelt by his spirit. And this is part of why the gospel really is good news. I mean, when you think about it, it's that, it's that Christ is not just an example or pattern to follow. It's that he supplies the power that enables us to be who he's called to be, to become who he's committed to transforming us into. Because if Christ only provided an example for us, he'd crush us. Think of that. If that's all that you view Jesus as, then that is a crushing burden. But Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see, the reason it's light is because Christ also supplies the power that enables us to be transformed into the kind of person we desire and he desires us to be. I love when Paul writes that church in Philippi and he says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began the good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's his work that he's committed to inside of you. You see, there's a lesson here because as I see it again, Jesus clearly describes what's going to happen and the guys are so overwhelmed that they begin to melt down. But we see that there's a transformation that eventually takes place in their story. The lesson here is that that's that, that our reaction doesn't have to be what feels hardwired to us, that as we follow Jesus, there's a transformation that takes place where it's not just a fight or flight response, but that there's faith that can respond in these difficult moments. And for the disciples, they wouldn't always know what God's doing. They wouldn't know or understand what Jesus was up to. And although Jesus was okay with that, at some point they had to be okay with it too. 
Think about that. In the story, Jesus was okay with the fact that they still didn't get it. He didn't abandon them because they failed to understand it. He stuck with them. But they had to be okay with that fact too. And I would say the same is true for us. We might not always know or understand what God's doing or what he's up to, but we have to choose, this is what faith is, to be okay with that, to not always have the answers. To to lack understanding becomes this opportunity for a door to open for anxiety and pressure unless we, in those moments, choose choose to trust him anyway, unless we're willing to be okay with just not knowing. That's the tension that we live in so much of the time. I wish that God felt it necessary to explain things to me. I wish it worked that way, but he doesn't. He seems okay with that. I'm not always okay with that. But but I need to choose to be. That's what faith will look like. And we know what he was up to in their story. The reason that he'd take them down this hard road towards suffering is because he was rescuing and redeeming the world. He was securing salvation. That's why he's telling them, I'm going to suffer and die, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. We know from hindsight what he's doing in their life. But the question is, am I willing to trust him in my story, even when I don't really see or understand what he's up to? Scripture says in Isaiah that his his thoughts are above ours. His ways are beyond our understanding. Romans says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to to understand his decisions and his ways. I think at some point, we just have to quit trying and choose to embrace faith and move forward with Jesus. There are so many reasons to believe and to trust Jesus. I'm not saying those aren't there and that you close your eyes to reality and blindly follow him. I'm not saying that. There are so many reasons, historical ones, archaeological ones. There are so many scriptural reasons. There are so many grace and goodness and faithfulness of God examples that give us reason to trust him. But when we don't understand, we just have to press in in faith. In Jesus' kingdom, this fight or flight is reshaped, I think, into the possibility of faith. But then Jesus, as he teaches them, he begins to teach them that greatness, think of this, in Jesus' kingdom, this is kind of the second thing to chew on, in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is redefined. In Jesus' kingdom, greatness is redefined as self-sacrificial service. Now think about this. When we read Jesus jumping in on their argument about who's the greatest, we can almost begin to assume that Jesus didn't like that they were even thinking about these things. But be clear on this. The, The desire to be great isn't a sinful desire as long as we allow greatness to be redefined, different from how our culture defines it, defined by Jesus himself. I mean, the, the transition here is, is so, like, so quick that it almost gives you whiplash, where Jesus is commenting about his suffering and death and resurrection, and then the guys are having an argument about who's going to be the greatest and, and wanting to know who's going to have the seat of authority next to you, where, where for them, it, it's, it's, it's very clear they're missing things here. And because of their argument, it becomes clear they're not just getting Jesus wrong, where they can't understand why Jesus would suffer and die, but they're also getting what it would look like to follow Jesus a bit wrong, aren't they? Because they're already thinking about what kind of a position of power will I share next to you? And so Jesus is going to redefine some things, but first he just asked them, so guys, what is it that you were talking about back there? There's a, a heated discussion, guys. What, what is it that, that was, was so intense that you seemed so worked up about? And these guys are embarrassed enough that none of them even answer Jesus. Now, don't miss this, though. 
Jesus then doesn't respond by forbidding them or condemning them and their desire to be great or to be significant. Instead, he just redefines it. He redefines what greatness or significance looks like. Because the truth is, all of us are born with a desire to be great, to, to have a desire to matter, to make a difference, and to leave the world better. And Jesus doesn't say those things are a bad thing. I mean, think even of this. Think about American mythology. Forget Greek mythology. Just today, think American mythology. We don't have Hercules and Zeus. We've got Batman, Iron Man, and the Avengers. We, we don't need Homer's Iliad anymore because we've got DC and Marvel Comics. And these are not my love language per se. Maybe you're really into them, but when you think about it, all these modern mythological stories, they involve human beings who seem like ordinary individuals who have these special powers so that they can defend the weak even if it's at cost or expense to themselves. They're going to defend the weak, and they're going to save the world. They seem ordinary. They're gifted with something extraordinary, and then they use it to defend the weak and save the world, even if it's costly for themselves. And these films kill it in the box office. Lindsay and I watched the first couple like X-Men years ago and then a first couple spin-offs and like then it just felt like we couldn't keep up. It wasn't really our thing. And now there's so many of them when we have some friends who are really into them. We're like, we don't even know where to begin, like how to jump into the story because it's, it's everywhere. There's so many of these movies and the storylines go every direction. These stories though, these movies are killing it even though the movies have no surprises inside of them. We don't go and see these types of movies to be surprised and go, I can't wait to follow the narrative and see what happens. We know what's going to happen. The good guys win, right? We know that. Like, that's why we go to see it. We go to see it, though, because there's a part of us that really likes the idea. We connect with the story or the ideal of a normal human being given some special gift that makes them able to benefit other people, to save other people, to rescue helpless people. We long to matter, and that's why we lean into these stories, even when they're not great and they're really predictable stories, which is just my opinion, and some of you would really disagree with that. But we want to matter. We want to have an impact. We want to be great. But our desire, in just the simplest of its infantile states, is so beautiful. It's so precious. But then it becomes super warped and twisted. And I think part of that's our culture outside of us. A part of that is our dark heart inside of us, though. It's our sinful fallen nature. It's our ego. We shift from what is just a pure desire to do something that's great for other people, and then it turns into the thought of being admired and appreciated as great by other people. There's a subtle difference there. From a desire to serve the weak to then a desire to, I really want to be empowered and admired by the weak. I want to be served by the weak. And what starts as a desire just to feel like I live a life that matters and is significant, it quickly becomes distorted and turns into a desire to be admired and respected and powerful and even to be intimidating or maybe even to be feared by other people. I think God created all of us with a deep need and desire to be loved. I think the distorted version of that, though, is our internal need that we find sometimes inside of us that's a need to be admired. I think they're different. God made us to need to be loved. The distortion of that is that we sometimes just desire to be admired. Remember, Jesus doesn't blast them for this desire to be great. Instead, he just redefines what greatness looks like. I don't think we have to apologize for wanting to live a life that's significant. I don't, I don't think that we should discourage that. I'm a father with three young kids. I don't think I should discourage that with my kids. Like, no, no, no. 
Don't have ambition to be great or make a difference in the world. No, I think what we need to do, though, is just make sure that our own definition and even the definition our children develop of greatness is not distorted by our own sinful fallen nature or by the world and culture around us. Because think about it. When that definition of greatness is defined by the world, just think about how empty it is. Think about how empty it is to work and strive for the admiration of other people. In fact, in Proverbs, it says it's a dangerous trap. Do you remember when social media first was a thing? And it seemed like, wow, what a great idea. This will help us. It'll help us to like get to know each other better. We'll like, they'll see who I really am and then we'll feel closer and like I'll see who they really are and I'll get to see their like normal everyday lives and it'll be so great and we'll all be friends and I can have so many more friends than I've ever had before because of these real connections with other human beings through these platforms. This is incredible. So yeah, we post our pictures and initially it was like, this is me today running errands. And then like, this is me on my day off just sitting here like, what social media has morphed into, though, is so different from that, isn't it? It seemed like such a novel idea that would help with connectedness. Instead, we end up presenting and projecting these curated caricature versions of ourselves that we're so careful to project something where we don't catalog and then present the boring normal moments. We want to present cleverly curated versions of ourselves that are worthy of admiration for other people. Did you see the vacation I went on? Have you seen this meal I made? You peasants eat that for dinner? Have you seen what we make in the O'Keefe house? Like we, we all of a sudden, what, what initially was such a gift and felt like this is a great idea. What a cool thing. How's the world existed without this? Like we'll be so connected and it'll be so fun. And, and now we, we're in a culture that this incredibly sophisticated modern culture where people are defining self-worth based on likes and follows. How broken is that definition of greatness? That people are up at night thinking about what their ratio is on Instagram. There's something broken in that. That's why it matters that Jesus redefines greatness. That's why it matters that we make sure our definition of greatness looks more like his than the world's. That's why it's important that we lean into our kids and help them to see what it looks like. I mean, think about how meaningless it is. If you're working to strive to be successful, if your success and greatness is defined as just a lot of money or a fast car, it's empty and an unending pursuit because what we do is we do not compare ourselves to people who are behind us. We compare ourselves to people who are ahead of us. And so we always find ourselves living in someone else's shadow, no matter how big the house is or how fast the car is which I think is even kind of what happens in our story where Jesus is addressing them about their definition of greatness. And then one of the guys has this honest and raw moment, John, and he says, well, is that like when I just saw these guys casting out demons in your name? Remember the guys just had failed to do this? And Jesus taught them that it's faith and prayer. It's me, your connection to me that's going to give you power to do this. And he's apparently it hit on an insecurity for them because when he sees them doing that successfully, he goes and tells them, hey, you don't follow us. You're not one of us. And so you're not allowed to do that. The moment, the interaction there actually mirrors something that happens with Moses and Joshua, where Joshua goes and forbids these individuals from prophesying in the name of the Lord, even though their prophecies were right. And Moses looks at him and says, what are you, jealous? Don't tell them not to do that. This is that moment now in the New Testament where Jesus is looking at the guys, his young protégés, like Moses with Joshua, and saying, hang on, why did you stop them? No, why would you forbid them from doing this? He's, he's pointing out the envy that existed inside of them. Listen, envy, it, it 
casts a gloomy shadow because it eclipses and overtakes all of life's joy. And Jesus is slowing the guys down, talking about greatness. Ambition's not the problem. The problem's really selfish ambition. Don't you see that this distorted view that we possess as a culture of greatness is self-centered and ultimately, in the end, it's empty and even destructive, and in the end, it pushes other people away from us. Now, what if we had instead greatness redefined for us? What, what if it could be great, which, which if I could be great, that's a good desire where, where you could have your life have incredible value and not have it get stuck in the trap and pressure of always comparing yourself to other people or always wanting to be admired by them. And that's what Jesus is here talking about. Look at what he says when he, he tells them, if you want to be great, if you want to be the first, then be the servant of all. Make your goal to serve every person. No one is beneath you. In an honor and shame culture, this is a crazy statement here. This doesn't exist in our hearts. And then this week, I'm correcting one of my kids who's had a bad attitude for the last probably week, who I told them, I'm not going to let you speak to mom anymore that way. Your tone is not okay. And when they responded to me and raised their voice, I said, and you can't raise your voice at me. And they responded and said, but you're raising your voice at me. And I said, but I'm your dad. I'm in the position of power, so I'm allowed. Do you hear how broken that is, though? It's a humbling moment for me, honestly. When I realized for me to be servant of all is not to exploit a moment like that or look for a power play like that. Well, hang on, it's different. We have different rules. I can treat you and speak to you the way that I want because I'm in the position of power. It still it functions in our own world. It meant for me apologizing, humbling myself and saying, I shouldn't, I'm frustrated, but I shouldn't speak to you this way. You're right. But you shouldn't speak to your mom still that way. So you still have to go to your room. <laughs> he says, you need to become the servant of all. The word here, deacon, it's one who waits tables or a waiter. It's, it's a servant who exists to make other people's lives better. Th their goal was not to enrich their own life. That's not what they woke up thinking about. They woke up thinking, my role in life is to make other people's lives better rather than my own. And then he said, and, and if you'll receive, even as a child, for you to, to do something, think about a child, you're doing something for someone who can do nothing in return for you. It's kind of the beauty of watching a new mom holding a baby when you realize that's what love is meant to look like. When my kids were born, I loved them instinctively, intuitively. It was a crazy thing that as people explained it, I never understood it until you experience it. When you hold them for the first time, it's a crazy experience. And there was no contract that was signed in that moment. We didn't look at our oldest and say, cool, so if you agree to this or sign on the dotted line here, then I, that, that's your side. Here's my side. I promise you love because you're promising me respect. And th there's nothing like that. There's just this instinct, this natural thing that takes place where you just love them regardless of any of those things. You're loving someone who can do nothing for you. And that's what's so beautiful about the love of a parent with a child. And this is what he's describing here. Are you willing to love and serve even those who can do nothing for you, like a child? Or are you only willing to be in relationship with people who you've got this other agenda behind that relationship? You're only willing to serve people and respect them and care for them only when you know that there might be a payout or a benefit. 
Everybody likes growing up having that rich friend because it meant that he had the best birthday parties. It meant that you maybe got the extra ticket because they had season tickets to the Padre game or whatever. We, we knew even as kids how to work some of those angles. But Jesus is saying, what if we pushed all that aside and you just loved with no promise of a return? Now, let's be honest that there's a part of that that's a really scary prospect. Because to do that, we fear that if I'm not looking out for myself, and I'm just selflessly giving to every person, if I'm not looking out for myself, who will look out for me? In a marriage, this is what we talk about next week because he discusses marriage. In a marriage, I think that's sometimes our fear as well. If we love self-sacrificially the other person without trying to get something from them, our fear is, does that leave us in a vulnerable position to be exploited? Yes. In a marriage, what if it's two people committing to each other to do that? That's a beautiful place to to reside in. But what about in other human relationships? These people don't love me like that. They're not committed to me. They haven't made those vows, but Jesus has. Jesus has committed himself to me like that. I can fear and go, well, I I don't know that I can do this with other people because who's going to look out for me? Isn't that the beauty and the power of the gospel? That we know that Jesus will care for us and that he will always look after us. If you want to be great, you don't have to have grand resources at your disposal. I'm neither Ellen or Oprah. I'm not giving away cars today. But Jesus says, you give away even a glass of water. You give someone your time and your attention, some affection, just those simple things that maybe even cost you nothing, but you're willing to give it. That's what he's talking about here. And he says it might not make national news. It it might not turn the heads of the office. It's seen by God, though, and you'll be rewarded by God for it. And and just real quickly, I'll mention to you, in the book of 2 Corinthians, and if you're in a home group, maybe this is a part of your discussion this week. In 2 Corinthians 5, there's a judgment seat that's described that's really unique called the Bema Seat. That's a judgment seat that at the end of the Olympic Games, those who competed would come to receive their reward. Their judgment wasn't whether or not they could belong. They already belonged. They didn't compete for citizenship. They could not compete unless they were citizens. They already belonged, but the ones who belonged were given rewards based on how they ran their race. So that's the imagery in 2 Corinthians, that we will stand before him, and when we are judged... All of the the motives will be exposed behind the things that we've done. But we'll be rewarded for whatever we've done for God and for other people with a pure motive. Jesus said, even if it's as simple as just pouring a glass of cold water for someone. And on that day, when we stand before him as those who belong and citizenship is already secure, in that moment, the first will become last and the last will become first. In that moment, we lean into and experience a kingdom reality that that we just get to see in part here that we'll see in totality there. Remember, Jesus doesn't just give an example or mere instruction. The gospel, the good news, is that he gives more than that. He gives himself. He gives us a transformational power that works inside of us, and that power is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. So he's not just giving us an example here or a bunch of principles or ideals. It's the outworking of the work of his spirit in us as we yield to him. Listen, for me as a parent, I want my children to be driven and to have ambition and not settle for mediocrity. I have two little girls. I want them to marry people who have drive. I don't want them to be in relationships with individuals who have no drive and no ambition and no motivation. I have a son. I don't want him to marry a young woman who who fits that description. I want her to be strong and ambitious. 
However, I want my kids to grow up freed from the world's broken definition of greatness and then to be incredibly driven and ambitious people whose definition is reshaped by the gospel. That's what our hope is. And how does the gospel reshape that definition? How does it free me from uh, the, the world's definition? How does it free me to pursue a better form of greatness? Remember, we are hardwired with that desire to be loved. But the distortion of that need is our desire to be admired or respected or powerful people. But the gospel of Jesus assures me that I'm noticed, that I'm already seen, that I'm already known, that I already matter, that I'm already loved. And those are such freeing realities that then allow me to live loving and serving and giving to other people without needing them to reciprocate that because I'm already receiving that kind of care from Jesus. So I can give without getting because I'm already getting without ever giving him anything. It's a give and a get, but it's a totally different paradigm where I'm not looking at other people to fulfill those deep needs and cravings, not even looking the direction of my spouse because I'd crush her under those needs. I receive those things from Jesus first and it frees me. That's the gospel's power in my life. It frees me to engage with the world in a different way because of what Christ has already given me. Remember, the gospel tells me I'm fully known and fully loved. If I'm fully known and not loved, well, that's our worst fear. But if I'm loved and not known, well, that's shallow. But our greatest desire is to be fully known and fully loved, and that is the reality and experience of a relationship with Jesus. And that reality is a powerful, transformative one that frees us. It deeply impacts and frees us to love other people the way that Christ has loved us. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, that, that fight and flight, fight or flight reaction is all of a sudden beginning to be transformed into what it looks like to be a person of faith. In Jesus' kingdom, greatness is redefined as self-sacrificial service. And then finally, Jesus finishes this section of scripture by showing us that in Jesus' kingdom, that sin is reframed. Sin is reframed so that I respond to it appropriately. Because our culture's definition of sin, or even how serious it takes it, is very different than what Jesus teaches here. He reframes sin in light of a place called Gehenna. In fact, each time where it's in your English Bible, it's probably translated as hell as he talks about these things, like better for you to cut off your hand than to end up in hell. It's the, it's the word Gehenna. And, and buckle up, here's your very quick three-minute nerdy fun fact of the day, uh, quick rant, and then we'll land the plane shortly after this. So please track with me. Uh, the Valley of Gehenna, or Hinnon, is a place that in the Old Testament is described for us as being right outside the walls of Jerusalem, and is a place that's referred to as Tophet. It means the place of burning. It's a geographical gorge that sits outside the city walls in the southwestern corner. It still exists there today in Israel. It's the lowest place in Jerusalem geographically, but it's also the lowest place morally in the history of Israel. It's a historical landmine of brokenness and messy idolatry. Over 3,000 years ago when the, the nation of Israel first moved into that land, the Canaanites already existed there. And in that area, in Tophet, the place of burning, there in Gehenna, they had idolatry set up, worship of this terrible pagan entity. And as the Jews showed up, they were appalled to watch that the way that they worshiped this entity was they were sacrificing their babies, their children, to this deity. 
And God steps in before they even arrive in the land and warns them that this should never happen for them, that they should never follow this pagan god, Moloch, where they would profane the name of the Lord and where they would sacrifice their children to it. Now, Moloch is this Canaanite deity who we know was worshipped through child sacrifices where they had this, this, these images that they'd make with arms outstretched. They'd start fires underneath it, and then their children would burn alive in the arms of this god. The name that's given, at least in Hebrew, of Molech is two Hebrew words squished together that mean the king of shame. Isn't that interesting that God says this is how you should know that God or how you should refer to him? This is the pinnacle of, of human shame, what's happening here. It's tragic what's happening. It's shameful what's happening. It's known as, remember, Tophet, the place where they practice this pagan worship, the place of burning, where the most shameful of things were happening. And yet Solomon shows up, and at the end of his life, Solomon ends up reinstituting worship to this pagan god. And then as you follow the storyline in the Old Testament, it's then King Ahaz who reintroduces it 200 years later by burning his own sons. It's then two generations later, a king by the name of Manasseh who does the same thing. And then the Bible tells us, a few generations after that, a young king by the name of Josiah rises to power, and when he does, he goes on a rampage straight for that gorge, that valley. And his determination is to desecrate this awful, godless place. In fact, in Scripture, it says that he defiled it. Now, in Scripture, it gives some definition and description of what that meant, but then history also tells us. What he does is he goes there and and basically makes this pagan place of worship into the city dump, where they take all of their rubbish, all of their trash, where they even hewn out uh, basically ancient septic systems where your, your urine, your feces, everything would dump out there. It was not just where you'd throw your garbage, but where human waste was ending up there. If you had a dead animal, a, a dog or something in your home, you'd take the dead animal and throw it there. If there was a criminal, in order to disrespect the one who, who was maybe executed for their, their crimes, rather than giving them a proper burial, which was a big deal in Jewish culture, they'd throw the body of that person out there. This was a gnarly scene, and then they lit it on fire, and, and it burned perpetually as it just consumed things. It wasn't just that it burned, but Jesus here quotes from the final verse in the book of Isaiah, where he says three times in this passage that the worm doesn't die there, and the fire's not quenched. It's not just that the fire perpetually burned, but worms and maggots were constantly feasting on these dead individuals or these dead animals that were there. The imagery is gnarly. What Josiah sought to do, though, he successfully did. He took this place that was was the celebration of the city outside the city walls of evil and corruption, and he turned it into a place where the city took all that was impure about themselves and discarded it there so that their impurity could be consumed so that what would remain in the city could once again be purified. So this was a very real uh, geographical and historical place, and its imagery becomes this illustration and example of the final place where evil will be destroyed, where all of it will be taken away and consumed to leave what's behind as pure. Now, the vivid and graphic imagery of this place, Gehenna, becomes the favorite description and illustration that biblical writers, even Jesus himself, will use in describing a final resting place for those who live in rebellion against God, that the impurity would be taken away from God's holy place, the holy city, and that the impurity would be consumed to leave only what remains to be pronounced pure and clean again. That's the imagery that's being used here. And Jesus, though, will look at his disciples and finish this passage in a super weird way. 
Because after talking about hell, he then looks at them and says, you need to allow your life to be seasoned with salt and fire, to let salt and fire have its work in you now. Salt and fire share one thing in common, and that's that they both purify whatever they touch. Salt prevents disintegration and corruption. It preserves what it touches. Salt like fire will then search out every element of destruction and hold it in check until it eliminates it. And Jesus is teaching, think about this, that we will either allow a purifying fire to do its work in my life now to remove impurity from me, or if I refuse, I will face a purifying fire in my future that will destroy and purge the impurity that exists within me. Because Jesus, in this moment, he reframes sin in light of this place called Gehenna. And what he tells us is clearly that you have to take really drastic measure with your sin. And the truth is, we sin when we start to believe a lie about what's going to make us happy and whole. And that's where that, that lie started in Eden. That lie is still perpetuated in the 21st century. But Jesus steps in and tells you, sin's not managed or maintained. It's got to be cut off and thrown aside. And he's not promoting self-mutilation here. He's speaking in hyperbole. You probably know this, but his point here is that sin is very serious business. In fact, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read it, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week. There he tells his audience that the issue is not the hand or the foot or the eye. The issue is the heart. And so if your issue is lust and you pop your eye out, you still have lust in your heart. That's, that's not going to solve the issue. The, the, the issue is still going to be present. But his point was be willing to take really drastic measure with your sin. And, and that means for us that maybe today is the day we finally go home and cut the internet cable. Or where you go home and you end a relationship. Or you once and for all delete their phone number. Or you decide I'm going to remove that app. Or you drain pour a bottle from the closet where you flush your stockpile or stash down the toilet. It's where you cancel your membership. It's where maybe you're even willing to quit your job and make a career change that you're willing to take drastic measure. I mean, what decision or step or sacrifice is too drastic when your eternal soul is at stake? I mean, what if you refuse? to? What in your life would you refuse to let go of? Because he said, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. What place are you determined to still walk to when Jesus is saying, but if your foot is taking you there and causing you to sin, then cut it off? Or what person or thing has caught your eye and captivated your heart so deeply that you're not willing to set a boundary there and lop it off or pluck it out? What's worth it that you'd refuse to repent and forsake it in order for you just to yield to Jesus in this moment as Lord and Savior? Will that decision be worth it a year from now? How about hanging on to it for 10 years? A hundred years from now, how will you feel about this decision to hang on to that thing or to not cut off that relationship? A thousand years from now, how does that reframe it? Because sin that's tolerated and not dealt with, it's destructive. And he points that out very clearly. It's destructive to yourself. It's destructive relationally. He says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, better if a millstone is tied around your neck. It's interesting, Josephus, the historian, said that that was the penalty that was given to people who led an insurrection over the governing authorities over them, that they'd take a millstone, throw it around their neck. He's saying, if you're leading a rebellion by setting a poor example, by indulging in your sin and leading people also to rebel against me, you'd be better off if you did that. And ultimately, it's an eternal decision. And we can choke on this for good reason, because the imagery is horrific, it's overwhelming, it's drastic. But it's not quite as drastic as a perfect holy God humbly becoming a fragile child or a father in heaven 
watching his perfect son die on a cross for imperfect men. I think that the cross reframes our view of sin in that it exposes just how broken evil is, that that our broken world would take the only perfect person and do that to him at a cross. It doesn't just expose it, but it also rips evil, strips it of its power once and for all. Sin loses its appeal and also its power under the shadow of the cross. Okay, close your Bible. This is the most important thing I'd I'd say to you today for sure. So please don't miss this. Don't misunderstand me. Are you seeing this? Like, are you seeing the the cultural tells that Jesus is saying, this is a, if you're a part of the kingdom culture, this, this is what it'll look like. In your life, as the gospel takes root in your life, are you starting to see that, that this is what it will look like? Or can you see these things at work, these characteristics and traits naturally developing it in the people that you know where Jesus is king of their life? Because remember, the kingdom of heaven, it's like leaven. The, the pressure of this message is not, so go do these things. The pressure of this message is yield to Jesus and allow him, his kingdom, to live in your heart and spread and permeate the whole of who you are. Remember his work of the kingdom like leaven and a loaf. It works subtly but pervasively beneath the surface at work in our lives to transform the whole of who we are. You see, because when that happens, faith becomes present where we're a fight or flight default setting once kicked in because... We've experienced a good God who loved us enough to give himself for us and will never leave us or forsake us. And like a good father, we experience his goodness and faithfulness. And as we experience that, we learn to fall back on it. We learn to trust him by faith. It's as the kingdom leaven is inserted into our life and as we allow and yield to Jesus, it means that we're free to give without requiring of receiving in return. Because we can receive and welcome and care for even the little ones who can do nothing for us. Because Christ himself has freely given so much to us. When the kingdom of heaven is at work in our lives, we're free to find significance separate from exhausting ourselves with competition and comparison. Because we're fully known and fully loved by Jesus. And that truth in reality, it transforms us day by day. It means that we're freed from chasing pleasure where it cannot be found. The cross exposed the lies we once believed about what would make us happy, and it removed the power of those lies that they once had over us. Our message is to let the king of heaven reign in our heart. And when he does, the culture of heaven will permeate our lives. And so Jesus, may that be true.